But right now we're going to read from the Bible, and we're going to read from Romans 3, 20 to 26, which, if you're paying attention, is the exact same passage as last week. Ooh, yeah. So Romans 3, 20 to 26, reading on justification. It says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, it's great to be um, up here with you. And if you're joining us online, um, just good day to you as well. My name is Jacob. If I haven't met you before... I hope you've been having a great weekend with this great weather. I've, it's just put me in the best mood. So hopefully that comes through. I'm just like in a good mood. Winter's over. Maybe you're watching this from the beach, like just kind of lying there in the sun right now. That's you. Everyone here is just so jealous. Um, I wonder if that's you. Maybe it is. Um, we're going to be jumping straight into to looking at, at the passage that Jez just read. As we, as we think about, as we have been over this series, I guess the, the key truths that make Christianity what it is. And last week and this week and the next couple of weeks, in particular, we're looking at really what is achieved when Jesus died on the cross for us. And looking at, I guess, a few different kind of metaphors or images for that. So last week we looked at how um, the gospel brings us from people who are objects of God's wrath to people who are forgiven. Next week we're looking at the transition from death to life. The week after that we're looking at how it is that we're brought from being outside of God's family into God's family. But this week, the key kind of image um, or key scene that we're kind of understanding is that of a courtroom. That is, how, how does someone go from being declared guilty to being declared innocent? And um, it's, not a, it's not, I think, a very comfortable experience being judged. I don't know if any of you guys have ever had the experience of going to court and being on trial. Um, I've done it once, and I'm going to say from the outset it was voluntary. I'll have to explain. Um, uh, a few years ago, I was just trying to get around a corner, and uh, you know, I was in the queue, everyone's getting around, the light went orange, I was like, ah, oh, there's plenty of time in here. And then as I was going through, the flash happened, and a couple of weeks later, the fine came in the mail. Now, this was a few years ago, so I was a student, and I uh, didn't have a whole lot of money, and the fine looked to me to be pretty, pretty hefty. But what I lacked in money, I had heaps of in time. Um, and so on the, on the back of the, the letter that you get, there's this little line that I guess most people don't take up, but it just says, if you'd like to have this matter heard in court, please email so-and-so. I was like, I've got time, let's do this. Um, and I wasn't going in, obviously, to deny it, like it was pretty, there was a photo and everything, but I was just going to go in and, and, and try to explain that I didn't have heaps of money, I can take the demerits, I can pay a bit of money and, and to see what happens. But even though it was a pretty straightforward thing, I think I was a bit taken aback by how formal a procedure it still was. So the first thing you do when you go in is you've got to kind of enter a plea. And so they, they read out your name, and you've got to stand up in front of a, a room of people who are all just scumbags the same as you, uh, there for the same thing. And, um, and they, they read out the, the charge, which, you know, going through red light. And then you've got to say out loud whether you're, whether you're saying you're innocent or you're guilty. 
And I'm not normally a nervous person about you know, speaking in front of a group of people, but something about that experience of having to kind of stand up in front of a crowd of strangers and a judge and describe myself as guilty was really confronting. I guess this is why most people don't go through this process when they get a fine. Um, it was something just that, that just took the confidence out of me. I don't know, I don't know what it was, but just something about it just really got to me. Um, those who were interested, in the end, I saved $200 off the fine, and I was in court for eight hours, so that equates to $25 an hour, which was roughly the same as the casual job I had at the time. So an overall win there. But it's not a comfortable thing to be judged. Um, I don't think any of us kind of really look forward to an experience of standing before a judge and being told that you're guilty. And so what I'm about to say isn't the most kind of chipper places to kind of start a sermon, but I think it's where we need to start to make sense of, of this passage. We don't like thinking on the fact that our, that our lives will end and that one day we'll die, but we will. Um, and I'm sorry to be the reminder of that. And it will be the case that there will be a point that your life will be completed and the question will be, did you live a good one? Was it good enough? The Bible says that at that time, all people will stand before God, their creator, and he will offer a verdict on our lives, on our thoughts, on our actions, on, on, on every aspect of it. And so I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine that day coming. And you might be here as someone who you're not even sure if there's a God or not. You're kind of here really kind of working through those questions, um, even just not really sure what you think. And that, that's okay. We love that you're with us. Um, we'd love to chat about that. That's a big question. Is there a God or not? We'd love to have that conversation. But just for the sake of this, just, just pretend if that's what you need to do, that you are standing before God at the end of your life. And he was to ask you, would you describe yourself as innocent or guilty? I think most of us, that wouldn't be a situation that we're, we're feeling particularly confident with. That we wouldn't confidently be able to say that our record is clean. The question, are we good enough, is, is, a, is a profound question. It's one that we wrestle with. I think it, it comes out every time we, we, we fear someone revealing something about us that we've tried to keep a secret. I think many of us in different times kind of walk around with a sense of shame or a sense of covering up who we really are. Like Jess said, today we're coming to the heart of the gospel, which is how can we be confident to stand before God as our judge? And we're looking at what Christians call the doctrine of justification. What does it mean to be justified? And, and I think just from the outset, I think this word to justify something, in our language, we normally use that as kind of making an excuse. So you can say like, I, you know, I went for a run which really justified having the donut this morning or something like that. But the way the Bible uses this word, it's not talking about just creating an excuse or giving a reason. But particularly what the word justification means is the process of being declared righteous. How, do, how is it that you can be declared innocent? And the Bible lays out in this, this passage we're looking at today in particular two ways that people can go about trying to justify themselves. Two, way, two pathways to attempt to have the, have the verdict on your life saying that you are righteous and you are innocent. And, and what we're going to call those is, is justification by works, which I would say is the default way that humans go about trying to live a good life. And the other one is to be justified by faith, which is, I think, this unique and beautiful offer of Christianity. And my hope is, as we go through this today, we can get to the point where we feel a joyful confidence at the prospect of standing before God as our judge. That's where we're heading, and let's just pray together before we get into that. Heavenly Father, we just pray for each and every one of us, uh, knowing that you know our hearts, you know our questions, you know our worries, you know our concerns, uh, you know our weeks, 
And so we just pray that in this time that you would just be offering us uh, what our souls most deeply need to hear. That we would have eyes to see amazing truths in your word. That we would have uh, a certain clarity of mind and heart to just to be thinking on these things for half an hour or so. And that you would use this time to be growing us in our understanding and our love of you. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the first way that, that, that people go about trying to have this declaration of innocence and righteousness on them is what the Bible calls justification by works. It's just, I think, the most instinctive impulse we have to seek to live our life according to some kind of objective standard. And I would say outside of Christianity, this is the kind of one of the unifying features of all the other world religions. But I think even irreligious people, this would be the way that they would kind of work out how it is that you live a good life. You've got some standard... And so you try to live up to it. You try to kind of meet that standard and have, have the good life. In the Bible, the, the key word to kind of sum up that mentality is the word righteousness. Um, and in the Old Testament, that's a word that's, that's used a lot. And it's not a word that we often, I think, use in talking about ourselves or others because I think righteousness even has like, we think of self-righteousness or this kind of religiosity or this kind of uptightness that, that a righteous person might be. But righteousness in the Bible just, it's, just simply means living the right way, doing right by others and doing right by God. It's not this kind of overly religious word. And for the Jewish people, the people to whom Jesus belonged uh, 2,000 years ago, righteousness meant you were a person that lived your life out in accordance with the law that God had given you. And I, I think this is a concept that's pretty unfamiliar for us. If you're a Christian, you know, been a Christian for a while, you might have a pretty low view of that Old Testament law because it's the thing we've kind of moved on from. It's the thing that kind of had some problems and we kind of passed that. Or maybe you've read some of the Old Testament and you've read that some of the laws in there are really quite just bizarre or, or hard to understand, which I don't think is that surprising really, seeing as these were laws written 3,000 years ago to a nomadic and then agricultural society in the time before police and sanitation and refrigeration and prisons. And so there's laws in there about how you handle your food, how you handle your waste, and how do you conduct law and order without a police force. So there's a bunch of stuff that for us seems really out of place. But at the end of the day, this law that God gave his people, which consisted of the Ten Commandments, which many of us would be familiar with, as well as like a couple of hundred other kind of smaller laws, laid out a standard of living that if you, if you kept these laws, you could be sure that you were uh, worshipping God as he, as he desired, worshipping him alone in, in, this, in the way that he wants to be worshipped. And you could be sure that you were doing right by others, living fairly and justly and generously with integrity. And I think it's just worth kind of mulling on for a second that, that it's actually a good thing that God sets out an objective standard for living. Um, it, you could conceive very easily of a God that had no objective standard for living and could be just quite happy for literally anyone to do literally whatever they want. But God has an objective standard. He, he sees people's hearts and actions and words through the lens of right and wrong. That there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. And so much of the law and so much of what it means to be righteous in, in the over 200 uses of this word righteousness in the Old Testament a heap of them particularly refer to just the gritty everyday living out a life of justice, being, being a person that cares about the poor, who cares about orphans, widows, people of other, of other races. So the, the way forward of righteousness set out in the law seems pretty straightforward. And the heart of it is good. 
And, and it's not that Jesus came along and said that you know, this law is got, you know, it's just rubbish. Jesus came along and said the law is good, and he actually summed it up in a pretty helpful way. In Matthew 22, which, um, which will come up on the screen for you, Jesus sums up the law like this. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I think it's a helpful way of summing up the law, but I think Jesus kind of emphasizes a word here that kind of, that I think is really helpful. What Jesus says in this summary is that following the law was and always will be more than just ticking boxes. It's a matter of love. That to, to actually be a righteous person doesn't just mean doing a few things, but it means loving with your heart God with, with everything and your neighbor as yourself. And I think this brings us to really the heart of the problem with this way of living for us which is quite simply, who can say that they've done this? What, what human on this planet can say that they have done what Jesus sets out? That, that we have loved God with all our heart and mind and soul? Who, who hasn't had other major things in their life that we've loved more than we've loved God? And who can say with any, with any truth that they've loved their neighbours themselves? And Jesus, in this word neighbour, includes even enemies. It's, it means love Love anyone you come into, into contact with as yourself. So who has done this? Jesus goes on to say that, that all of the law is actually a matter of the heart. That there is a, uh, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. Jesus says if you've even looked at someone who's not your husband or your wife in a lustful way, you've committed adultery in your heart and you're guilty of breaking the law. He says that there's a law, you know, do not murder. But he says if you've even hated someone and just wished misery or suffering upon them in your heart you're guilty of breaking that law and so this brings us to the first line that we looked at in romans in verse 20 romans chapter 3 paul says for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin see as good as god's standard is and as, as much as the world would be a better place if everyone did live up to god's standard no one does all, that the, all these standards do is reveal that we've got a deep problem, that we can't live up to this. We can't live up to God's standard of righteousness. And if you stood before God and you were honest, you would have to say that you failed. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, that's the, the Jewish law, and I've never really tried to keep the Jewish law. That's not a very you know, fair standard for kind of God to kind of to lay out. Um, but I reckon we've got a habit of setting the standard of what right living is just b- below the level of what we're capable of actually living up to, which is, you know, very convenient for us. But I just want you to imagine for a second if an invisible tape recorder was placed around your neck and it was there your whole life and uh, every time you spoke about what someone else should or shouldn't do, it activated and just recorded that sentence of what you're saying that someone else should do better or do different or, or not do at all. Every time you made a comment about how people should drive. Um, every time you made a comment about how people should parent their children. Every time you made a comment about how someone should treat their friends better. Or, or use their money in a better way. Or, or not use their money in, in such a way. Every time you made a comment about how someone else should spend their time. Every time you said that someone should have something, done something different or done something better. I think there'd be enough there that God could say, look, let's forget the Ten Commandments, throw them out the window. Let's just judge you according to the standard that you seem to, be, to have as appropriate for judging others. If that was the case, even then we would all fall short. 
It reveals that we are lawbreakers through and through. I don't know how you mute an iPad these days. This thing keeps dinging. Um, it would reveal that we are lawbreakers. It's not simply that we can't live up to this one standard that God issues, but we can't live up to any standard. Does anyone have a life that we could lay before a holy God and confidently say we've done right? So that's the first pathway that's laid out, and, and Paul concludes that, yeah, by the law, all that happens is we know that we're sinners. And so that we're going to turn now to the other one, the other, the other means of justification, which the Bible calls justification by faith. And I think this is unique to Christianity, probably one of the most radically unique doctrines there, there is in the Bible. And I think it's profoundly good news. We're going to keep reading from Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So he starts by claiming there is now righteousness that is disconnected from the law. It comes apart from the law, even though it's kind of pointed to by it. And like a lot of what we've been looking at in this series as we go through deep, what's going on here isn't immediately easy for us to understand. We'll keep reading and then try to make sense of it. From verse 23, he writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I just want to sum up what this hard to kind of read through sentence is saying. What it's saying is instead of working to make yourself righteous, you can receive righteousness as a gift. There is a righteousness that's not achieved but received. And so the question is, how is it that we can receive this righteousness that doesn't come just from working? Well, Paul says it's from the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And it's a gift. It's something that you are given. What it's getting at here is that although we've failed to live up to a righteous life, Jesus didn't. Jesus lived a totally righteous life. He fully fulfilled the law in every possible way. He, he genuinely and fully loved God with his whole heart, soul, and mind, with everything. There was nothing that came close to, to the love that Jesus had for, for his father. And also, Jesus loved his neighbors as himself. Every person he came into contact with, he put their needs before his own. He epitomized what it is to be a loving, self-sacrificial, generous person. Now, last week we looked at how it was that Jesus took the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our sin, but that's only half the story. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So half the story is that Jesus gets our sin and he gets the anger that that deserves. But the other half of the story is that we get his righteousness. There's an exchange that takes place. It's not simply that our sin goes on Jesus and then we're neutral. But our sin goes on Jesus and his perfect record, every good thing he has done is put on us. And so now God views us the way that he viewed Jesus. This is a mind-boggling thing to try to wrap your head around because it's, it's not like forgiveness that, you know, we, we can forgive other people so we have a sense of what that's like, but we can't do what happens here. We can't give someone else our righteousness. Our, you know, your character and your life isn't something you can just kind of pass around and trade like a voucher. In, human, in a human court, you can't go and just, you know, willy-nilly switch places with people here and there. Um, you can sort of deceptively do it from a distance, like when you get you know, a, a fine in the mail and you just, on the back you sign it over, 
to your spouse because you've got too many demerit points. I know some sneaky people do that. But, but that's, that's not what's going on here because that's deceptive. And what's going on here isn't, there's no deception in it because in, in the gospel, God is the judge, the one who has the right to make the decision. He is the wronged party, the one who has been sinned against. And he is the one that has the righteous life that is his to offer up to someone else. So in God's mercy, he sets up this trade that boggles the mind that somehow our guilt is taken off us and put on Jesus and his innocence and his righteousness is taken off him and put on us. You're not going to wrap your head around that fully. But can you see how this reality is, just, is more than even forgiveness? And forgiveness is good news, but this is better news still. Because as you'd know, you can forgive someone and then not feel immediately that good about them after. You can, you can decide that you're going to not hold someone to, to, to be punished or, or wish any wrong about them, but not immediately want to have them over to your house for dinner. But what's going on here? It's not, that, it's not that God is just forgetting our sin, but he's viewing us in a whole new light. He's given us a whole new identity that, that transforms lives, that changes who we are and even how we should view ourselves. I think it's at the heart of, of, why, of why Christianity is life-changing, of why people, people change when they understand this truth. One of the greatest, I think, stories ever told is, is, is the story that, that Victor Hugo tells in his novel Les Miserables, or The Miserables, if you're an English speaker like myself. And it tells the story, and you know, it's in, it's in mini-series form, it's in musical form. In whatever way you want to consume this thing, you've got to get around this story. It tells the story of Jean Valjean, who has been branded a criminal and a thief. He spent much of his, his adult life as a prisoner in chains, being told he is worthless, being told he is evil, being told he is wicked. And when he's released, he tries to get work as an honest man, but no one will give him work because he's branded as a criminal. He, he, he tries to find a place to sleep. No one will take him in and even give him a bed for the night. In desperation, he arrives at the house of a bishop who, even though he knows that he is a criminal, invites him in. He offers him a meal and a bed and a place to stay. And he's blown away by this hospitality initially, but in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean, he wakes up and convinced that he is what he's been branded, a criminal and a thief that has no ultimate hope, decides just to live that out. He creeps downstairs, he steals some silver cutlery, and he bolts, he leaves. Outside the town, there are, there are some police passing by who, who find this man who's, who's, who's branded as a criminal, and finding him in the possession of this silver, assume that a, a crime has taken place. They take him in chains back to the bishop's house just to confirm the evidence so they can take him back to prison. The bishop, on seeing Jean Valjean come in, knowing that, they, knowing that he's been robbed, just turns to him and says, rather than, than, than anything that you'd expect, he turns to him and says, Jean Valjean, my friend, you forgot the candlesticks. I gave these to you as well and hands him a pair of silver candlesticks. It's, it's this powerful moment in the story. And, and, and it changes him forever. He's released. There's no charges laid. But before he goes, the bishop turns to Jean Valjean and he says this, which I think is just so powerful. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I'm taking it from damnation and I'm giving it to God. He gives him this new identity. It's more than just letting him off the hook for the crime. He, 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 in a sense, buys him out. And for the rest of the story, everywhere Jean Valjean goes, he has these two silver candlesticks and he puts them in the mantle of every home that he stays as a reminder that he's not just what he's being branded, but he is new. 
that he has been shown grace. He has not been treated as he deserves, but he has been given a new identity for God. This is the heart of the doctrine of justification. We are given a new identity. We are given a gift of approval. That God, from this point forward, will not look on us as our lives deserve, as our sin deserves, but he looks on us as he looks on his son. Tim Keller says, forgiveness means you may go. That is, you're, kind of, you're free to leave. But justification is your, you may come. And what do you have to do to get this amazing gift? This passage just says it's received by faith. And that's not some catch, so you've got to be like, well, okay, there's the catch. I've got, to, I've got to have enough belief. I've got to believe strongly enough, and then maybe I'll get this thing. That's not what it is. It's saying it basically comes by nothing. The heart of this faith is knowing that there is not a single thing we can do to achieve it. It's not a matter we've got to be smart enough to understand it. It's not a matter that we've got to believe strong enough or, 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 or be good enough. It's a complete letting go of everything and just accepting this gift for what it is. That God would not look on us as we deserve, but he would look on us as he looks on Christ. It's a gift. So I just want to finish by, by speaking to two situations. Maybe you're here, and this is like the first time you've heard anything like this. Maybe you, you've tuned in online, even just kind of during this, and you're like, what's going on? This reality is the heart of Christianity. This is why it's good news. This is why people's lives change. This is why people give up their lives to come and be part of a church. It's because of this amazing reality. And I want you to know that to live a life where you are trying just to better yourself and somehow lift yourself back up or be good enough is an exhausting way to live. And maybe even coming to church today or is, part of this, is part of you just trying to better yourself. And that's, you know, you're kind of hoping by doing this enough that, that things are going to come together. That is not what the gospel is on about. It's an exhausting thing to be unsure as to what God would think of you. But there is an answer. There is a new identity on offer. There is a righteousness that is there just to be received. And it's the best news you could possibly hear. And so if this is something you want to explore further, like please come and speak to me after, after, after church or comment in the comments form if you're online so we can get in touch with you during the week. We want to explore this because we think it's the best news in the world. To, to actually have a peace and a rest that comes from knowing we don't have to keep trying, we don't have to keep working, we don't have to keep worrying about how we are before God because the answer is in Jesus. But I also want to say, if you're someone here who's heard this many times and, and this is true for you and you've, you've, you know this and you love this, I think one of the things this doctrine can be is like, that's kind of great news at the beginning, but then it kind of moves into this thing that just kind of sits like 3,000 feet above and doesn't really impact our day-to-day life. I just want to share, I think, I think there's a few areas that this impacts, but, but I think one that's key, particularly in the life of, of the church, that this, this shapes is, is how we give and receive criticism. I think giving and receiving criticism is, is a difficult topic because I think all of us know people that you've got to kind of walk on eggshells around. Um, people that, you know, will, if, if they know you've got something to say to them, will kind of orchestrate a situation where they can get out of it um, or, you know, hope they don't bring it up. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, you're, you just hate confrontation. You hate criticism. I think understanding this doctrine of justification enables us both to give criticism well but also to receive it on giving criticism. I think, I think Christians have a reputation as being people who love to criticize others, who love to be judgmental, who love to look down on other people. 
Like the ultimate picture of this for me is uh, Helen Lovejoy, the reverend's wife in The Simpsons, who just everywhere she goes, it's just like nitpicking other people and acting like she's so much better than everyone else. Which is a huge shame that's the image that Christians have. People who would just act like you should be more like me. Um, people who look at those who aren't in the church and, and just with a sense of like, oh, they must be stupid or they, mustn't kinda, they must just be shallow or whatever it is, just looking down on others. Or at church, people that just like really enjoy making other people feel bad about how they're going as they try to follow Jesus. I would say that the righteousness that we get by grace is the complete opposite to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is, I'm a good person, be more like me. And so when we're in the position to kind of offer someone some kind of feedback or critique or, or try to help them grow, we need to remember that there is nothing self about our righteousness. We haven't done it. We haven't achieved it. There is nothing in us that sets us above other people. All we have has been a gift. On our own, we are hopeless, and we've been given a gift in Jesus. So that needs to shape the way. That we need to remind ourselves of that every time we're going to cr- criticize someone else. Every time we have the impulse to say to someone else what they should be doing differently than that, we need to remember and start with the point that we ourselves, if it wasn't for the grace of God, would be nothing. But I think even deeper, I think this affects how it is that we take criticism as well. Taking criticism, I'm sure you'd know, is a hard thing to do. Whether it's on something like you know, your performance at work or whether it's just something really silly like someone telling you that they don't think your haircut's turned out that good. Um, but I think the hardest criticisms to take is when it gets to the core of who you are. When, when people talk, when, when there's something you need to hear about your character or what you're like that needs to change. And that, that is hard stuff to hear. And in the church, that, that is stuff that we need to hear because we're on about actually growing more like Jesus. Not, we, not to earn it, not to prove ourselves, but because we want to actually live lives that make sense in light of who God is. And if your identity and your confidence is found in your performance, is found in kind of you living a good life, that any time that anyone kind of exposes anything that's not quite right with you, that's going to be a real significant blow to your identity. So if someone critiques you or criticizes you, you'll either get defensive and try to discredit the person's view of you, or you'll play it down or, or play down that person, or you'll hear it and it'll crush you, and it'll keep you up at night. And you'll worry, does, does everyone think I'm a failure? Does everyone think that there's something wrong with me? You'll be overwhelmed with the sense that you need to improve. I think the doctrine of justification helps us not be in that position in two ways. Firstly, it enables the doctrine of justification enables us to agree with God's judgment of our works. God has already said that we've failed. That of our own lives, there are things wrong with us. That we've 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 mucked up. That we're not good enough based on our own lives and our own actions. Which I think that really takes the sting out of when someone offers, says something in some way that we're not perfect or not good. We've already heard it before and we're like, can just agree. I, f- I found this line this week um, that, uh, of how this counselor suggests that we should think about responding to criticism as, as Christians. And you're not going to literally respond in, in, in the words that this guy uses, but just look at this. To think about when someone critiques you, to respond in a way similar to this. This will come up on the screen. That you can say, You have not discovered a fraction of my guilt. Christ has said more about my sin, my failings, my rebellion, and my foolishness than any man can lay against me. I thank you for your corrections. They are a blessing and a kindness to me. 
For even when they are wrong or misplaced, they remind me of my true faults and sins, which my Lord and Savior paid dearly when he went to the cross for me. I want to hear where your criticisms are valid. Now, I don't think anyone's going to actually respond in, 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 that, in that phrasing, is it? That's a, it's a bit full on. But, um, but there's, the, the truth is in that, that if you really believe that on your own you're not perfect, it's not going to surprise you when people see your failings. It takes, the, it takes the pain out of it like that. Like I know deep, more deeply than anyone that, I'm, that I've got shortcomings. And so when I hear them, I can just remember, look, I already know that. God already knows that. It's not that bad that people, other people are noticing it. But secondly, not only do we agree with God's judgment of our works, that we can, we can agree with God's justification of us. The fact that despite our works and despite our failings, that God has deemed us righteous and accepted. So if someone doesn't think that you're perfect or says something that kind of alludes to that, we can just remember, well, God does. God has seen me with everything that I am and what he looks at when he sees me now is how he looks at Jesus. That God looks on us with a perfect love, with a perfect acceptance, so that we don't need to fear others not accepting us. We don't need to fear others looking at us as a failure because God has seen us and he loves us. That we have a new identity in Jesus. God has declared us innocent. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. So who cares what others think? This is, this is a, powerful, a powerful and I think beautiful truth, this, this doctrine of justification. As we continue to grow as a church, we want to be a people that, that just live in this that it kind of permeates this every level of church life, how we, how we relate to each other at church, how we relate to each other in missional communities, that we would be a people that build our lives in this new identity. In a moment, we're going to finish our time, the time of worship, and we can't sing here, but like, I think on the, on the back of this, every single part of us should be kind of wanting to, to burst out in song. So we're going to be reflecting on that in song in a minute. But before we do that, I'm just going to pray that God would be growing us in this as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the... For the doctrine of justification this thing that maybe we don't think a whole lot on week by week but at the end of the day is the thing that defines us as those who follow you Lord if there's anyone here who is uh, still exploring, still investigating these, these truths, we just pray that you would um, really just be, be with them be with us as a church this would be a place where we can actually encounter and, and discover the depths of this good news I pray you'd be revealing yourself uh, the good news that you are in this and lord as we as a church seek to love one another and help each other grow as as your followers we pray we would be people that know that at the end of the day it is only because of you it is only because of your grace and your grace alone that we are saved there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with you but everything has been done in jesus we thank you for this in jesus name amen